0: We are going to do our final lesson in You Mean the Bible Teaches That. You should have notes that you received on the way in. Does anybody not have a set of notes? If you put your hand up, I think the guys will get them to you. Everybody has. You guys do a great job. Thank you very much. So today is the final session for content. But next week, we are going to have a, a Q&A ...over the eight topics that we've gone over over these last many weeks together. So, in preparation for that, I've been encouraged to ask folks to email the questions that you might have. As we've gone through these subjects, if questions occurred to you, a practical application question or something else, then email that to me this week, and I'll do my best to include it in uh, in next week's session... The reason for emailing it ahead of time, there's a number of them, but one of them is that sometimes people have a question that they're embarrassed to ask, and they won't ask it uh, if they have to stand up or make it known. That's where you get the uh, I'm asking for a friend uh, idea. So you don't have to ask for a friend. You can email me. My email is kb at cbctrenton.com, kb at cbctrenton.com. If you go to cbctrenton.com, and you go to our contact us area, if you email that, info at cbctrenton.com, that goes to me uh, as well. So either way, KB at or, CB or, or info at, I'll get the email. All right, page one, today's topic, as you see on page one, is what does the Bible teach about the issue of, of suicide? And at the top of page one, I say life in a fallen world is difficult. It's not uncommon for people to view their lives in relation to the world around them and feel hopeless and powerless to change things. Sometimes such feelings have come from their own actions. Other times they've come from the actions of others around them. So let me stop there and just talk about that for a bit. I've said for a number of years to our congregation that the deeper the darkness the greater the light, the brighter the light. And I believe that, that in a culture that is descending gradually and ever more gradually into the darkness, I believe there's a great opportunity for the church and for the gospel. Because people begin to see the error of their way. <clears throat> because the truth is, people cannot live with the consequences of their own worldview. If people refuse to accept who God tells them they are, and we have that going on today, people saying I am and identifying themselves as whatever they determine themselves to be rather than what the God who made them tells them that they are, if people refuse to accept who God tells them they are, for example, then they have to work and and work to live And work to have some semblance of joy. And what it really amounts to is working to mask the dystopian place that that puts them. And so as Henry David Thoreau said, most people are living uh, quiet lives of desperation. And on the outside they may look like everything's fine. But on the inside it's not. And the more people... Distance themselves from what God says about who they are, what their world is made to be, and how they fit into it, then you'll find more and more people who fit into that category. Or, as you see people handling problems without dealing with the root of those problems, then those people become defeated and hopeless in living with those issues. So you take an issue like anger, and An individual is told by secular society what the root of their anger is and how to to handle it. But most often what they're told about the root of their anger and how to handle it is not what God says about the root of their anger and, and how to handle it. And so as a result of that, they go through anger management classes. And God never talks about managing your anger. God wants us to uproot our anger. Because the root of the anger anger is actually anchored in our in our hearts. Or you take rebellion. <clears throat> Someone's engaged a child begins showing signs of disobedience and rebellion. What What's happening in our society today? What do we very quickly go to to diagnose a child who's not obeying their teachers, not obeying their parents? We very quickly give them a diagnosis, we very quickly put them on, medication, and that's not the root, according to the Bible, it's not the root of rebellion. So if you give people a false diagnosis, and then you, as a result, give them a false uh, prescription, then it's necessarily going to result in frustration and hopelessness. If you take a disease model to behavioral issues, it's going to create this kind of frustration and hopelessness. How many times have you heard someone say something like alcoholism is a disease just like any other disease? You ever heard that? Now, I'm willing to grant that alcoholism is a a disease if if we define disease properly. But what I'm not willing to grant is the just like any other disease. Now, for those of you who struggle with alcohol, Uh, I apologize in advance, I'm not trying to beat on you, I'm just using this as an example. We could use other examples, but that's a ready one to use. But alcoholism is not a disease just like cancer, is it? And so what we do, and what we've been doing since the Garden of Eden, frankly, is trying to blame, shift the blame for the things that we do, and so we... We, we come up with a disease model for behavioral issues. When in fact, presumably, no one held a gun to my head to take the first drink, or the second drink, or the third drink, or that first snort, or that first toke, or whatever it is. Now, once you do that, once you choose to do those things, now you can become addicted, or the Bible's language would be enslaved. You become enslaved to something. So then if you want to invoke it's a disease, now I'm in it and now these these things are having bodily effects on me and they're very difficult for me to overcome. I'm good with that, but you can't say biblically that it's a disease just like any other disease. The Bible never labels sin as a disease. The Bible never labels sin as a disease, but we have sin being labeled as disease today. What people do and what the Bible would call sin today is being called disease. Now, the Bible does say that the ultimate cause of disease is sin. The ultimate cause of disease. Did you know there would be no actual disease if there was no sin? And there will be no disease when sin is eradicated in the future in the kingdom and in the eternal state, no, no disease. There would be no infants born with genetic problems if it weren't for the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world. That's part of the curse of a fallen a fallen world. So it is true that the ultimate cause of disease is sin, but the Bible never labels sin as, as a disease. Because all of these things happen in a fallen world and all of these things in our culture are happening at an increasing rate, leading to despair increasingly for people, then I believe it opens up an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to give the truth of the light of the gospel and the word of God to people and apply that to the varying problems that folks have. That is why in our church's 10-year plan, we... Uh, hope to and plan to begin a counseling center at our church to address the problems that people have, but do so from a biblical perspective, a biblical counseling center. Just as a plug on that, in September, September 13, 14, and 15, we are going to have biblical counselor Rick Thomas with us. And Rick is going to, on Friday the 13th of September, he's going to be with us at, excuse me, Gull Lake Conference Center for a marriage retreat. So it's an overnight marriage retreat. I encourage you couples to register uh, for that. And then on that Sunday, the 15th, he's going to be here uh, in both services in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we're going to have a meeting with Rick about beginning a counseling center at our church for anyone who's interested in that, anyone who might be interested in participating in it in the future. So mark that September 13 through 15 with Rick Thomas. All right, back to your notes then. Middle of that first paragraph, whatever the reason, A person has descended into deep despondency from which they see no way out. And as a result, they've concluded that life is no longer worth living. They've decided that however bad death is, it cannot be worse than continuing to live. They commit suicide. Many have been affected in some way or another. As Christians, we always have the difficult task of presenting simultaneously both truth and love, declaring what God says. And yet, demonstrating compassion for those grieving over or contemplating suicide, on the other hand. Psychology and medicine have tried to address the issue, but have done so with only varying degrees of success. It seems the churches have hardly done better. So we've got an important issue that affects so many. We need to take a careful look at what God says about it. Here are some statistics in the middle of page one. Uh, just the uh, third one and, and fourth one, I'll comment on. It involves uh, young people. Suicide is the eighth leading cause of death among men, and third leading cause among young people (18 to 24). And 86% of suicides among young people are young men. So notice the young part there. So you have got the third leading cause of of young people. Why would you just? Did you think? Why would you think that is? There's, I'm making the case that there are lots of things that we as a culture are telling people that aren't correct. We're offering them as solutions and in fact they're not solutions. So it then should not surprise us that young people who are being given these false prescriptions over a long period of time begin to realize that in their young adulthood. And in that young adulthood, and there are a lot of factors involved here, what I'm saying I think is a major one, but not the only one. There are economic factors involved. Uh, A young person may see no uh, economic future for them in the job market, as a career, and those kinds of things. And so this is particularly acute issue for young people. And then young men. And in our society, we have a great problem with young men who drift without knowing what to do with their lives. It's why uh, um, his name's escaping me. The guy from the University of Toronto, Jordan Peterson, is that his name? Yes. So Jordan Peterson has made waves. Uh, you can look up Jordan Peterson. If you YouTube him, you'll just see all of his debates and all of his stuff. But he's, he's written a book to young men. And he's uh, a best-selling book just telling young men things like, I'm not making this up, make your bed. And then he elaborates on why that's so important for a young man to take responsibility for stuff because we have so many young men who are just aimless. And they spend their time playing video games, and it's not until they're 30 that they, if they ever get serious about life, that they then really start to get serious about life. And so Jordan Peterson and others are trying to address that. But with all of that, it shouldn't surprise us that young people are a particular target then, for this kind of despair that can lead to the ultimate act. So, suicide in the Bible, bottom of page one. Some have argued the Bible has no explicit statement regarding suicide. Further, they say the Bible does talk about the dignity of human life, and if one is bedfast or a burden on others, then perhaps death with dignity would be a viable option. But the Bible's teaching on suicide is actually found in the sixth commandment, which says, You shall not murder. Now notice, it does not say, as is popularly quoted and in the past has been translated, you shall not kill. Uh, It's better to translate that, you shall not murder, because as we saw under uh, capital punishment a few weeks ago, the Bible actually sanctions capital punishment. The Bible actually approves of capital punishment for those who take the life of, of another and so, uh, killing is not always wrong. Killing in war is not always wrong. Uh, killing in capital punishment, if done justly, is not wrong according to the Bible. But murder, the taking of uh, the taking of innocent life, is indeed uh, condemned by God. Bottom of page one. This teaching on murder. Notice on murder. Not killing, but murder, has no qualifications. All through the Bible, we see that the taking of innocent human life is condemned, whether for convenience or revenge, hatred or carelessness. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 that we saw when we looked at capital punishment, says life is sacred because it's in the image of God. And so that life is not to be trifled with. Whoever sheds man's blood by his blood... Uh, by man his blood shall be shed for in the image of God he made man. because life is in God's image, it is precious. Just stop here for a moment and just say if you are someone who is contemplated or is contemplating taking your life, read that sentence slowly. your life is precious. your life is sacred your life is set apart that's what sacred means your life is different because you as a human being alone among god's creation only humanity is made in the image of god was made by god to reflect him back to him and so understand that that that's your identity and that's even without being a christian Even if you're not a Christian, you're still made in the image of God. And because you're made in the image of God, your life is precious. So that's one to anyone who may be contemplating that. But to all of us, that fact means we should look at all life through that lens. We should look at every human being that way. Now let's be honest, that's hard, isn't it? Because human beings are not only made in the image of God, they're also a wreck. The Bible says we're sinful and then that sin manifests itself in all sorts of ways and then you've got to deal with some people's kids. I mean, why are people like this? Why can't you just get it together? Life would be so much better for the rest of us if you would just stop or if you would just... But they're made in the image of God. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done or what they are doing... We need to remind ourselves they're made in the image of God. So, no one, not even you yourself, have the right to take that life. These simple but clear statements give us God's view of suicide. He condemns it as sin. Now, to the one contemplating suicide, that's hard. Surely, a loving God would not want me to live as I am now. If he's a God of love, he would either make it better or at least allow me to make it better by killing myself he's not a God of love, then it doesn't matter. These thoughts are very real to many each day. In fact, we could make the case that drugs and alcohol are simply suicide on the slow train. Isn't that what's happening with a lot of people? They're just biding their time and just wasting away with whatever assistance of choice, whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever, On the slow train, suicide on the slow train, an attempt to handle the problems of life through self-medication. These thoughts can't be lightly dismissed. So, suicide and God. What does suicide and our thoughts of suicide say about what we believe about God? Because, middle of page two, suicide ultimately shows what we believe about God in that moment. Consider what the Bible says about God and how these truths should affect our view of suicide. All our days are ordained for us by God, and even the dark days of despair and hopelessness are within his sovereign, gracious plan. Psalm 139. Life belongs to God to take and to give as he sees fit. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Top of page 3. Understand that you are not alone in your struggle. There have been many who have struggled with similar things before you, many who are struggling now, and there will be many after you who will battle with similar things. While this does not change your situation, it does remind you that you're not alone. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And the Greek word that's translated temptation in First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 is the same Greek word that's translated trial. So you could read that no trial has overtaken you but such as is common to humanity. And so you're not alone in that. Now, one of the principles that flows out of that truth is this. In the midst of your struggle with depression, with whether clinically diagnosed or just being down or starting to descend in your thought, in your thoughts in a negative way, in the midst of struggling with whatever is going on in your life, the worst thing you can do is withdraw yourself. It's the worst thing you can do, but it's also, most times, the first thing people do. They withdraw themselves, I'm no fun to be around, I don't want to be around anybody, and so they sort of drown in their sorrows by themselves. It's actually the worst thing you can do. The best things you can do is be around people who love you. And I know a place like that, it's called the church. Be around people who love you. Be around people who will accept you. Be around people who will pray for you, counsel you, encourage you, one. Two, be around people who you can serve. Because one of the best ways to get your mind off of what's going on with you is to get your mind on what's going on with other people. So be around those people who can encourage you and counsel you and pray for you, but also be around those people who that you can begin to pour yourself into so that you take your mind off of yourself. Fourth, God is good to us as his children. He cares for us in the midst of whatever difficulties we have going. Number five, he has not placed us in a situation that he cannot handle. And I want you to underscore, in fact, I've capitalized both letters in he to emphasize. Sometimes you hear preachers say, God will not put you in a situation that you cannot handle. Actually, he will. He'll put you in a situation you cannot handle to show that he can. And so I would encourage you not to counsel somebody who's in Struggling in a situation and say, Hey, God won't give you anything more than you can handle. No, He does. To show that His grace is sufficient. You know, Paul's pleading, Take this thing away from me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, pleading with the Lord to take it away. And the Lord says, No, my grace is sufficient to you. And my power is made known in your weakness. But He won't ever, you won't ever be in a situation that He cannot handle. Sixthly. God has a bigger plan for our lives. <clears throat> this morning in the first hour, we were in Ephesians, chap- looking at Ephesians chapter 6 and what the Bible says about spiritual warfare. A number of years ago, I did a series through the six chapters of the book of Ephesians. And uh, I titled that entire series of those six chapters, Your Place in God's Plan. Your Place in God's Plan. And one of the most blessed gifts that God has given to us is to tell us that we each have a place in His plan. And dear friend, if you will understand that, if you will understand that in the midst of whatever's going on with you, in the midst of whatever is ailing you, in the midst of that, God has a bigger plan for you, even in the midst of all the junk. And you think about that, rather than just think about Because that's what sin does. Sin minimizes. Sin reduces. It reduces the size of my life to the size of my circumstance. Sinful thinking reduces the size of my life to the size of my circumstance. But your life is much bigger than that. Because God has a much bigger plan for our lives. And he achieves that plan through the circumstances that he allows to come into. Our lives. So if you believe that, that means that there's no such thing as a random circumstance that came into my life that I was hit with this thing out of nowhere, and it's it's just randomly on its own taking its course. There is no such thing. There's no circumstance, there's no person. God is orchestrating every piece of it for his larger plan. Ultimately, that larger plan is for you and for me to grow into the likeness of Jesus. In fact, that's what the verse that we have under number 6, bottom of page 3, says. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Here's why. For because those God foreknew, he predestined to this, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Seventh, our hope and despair in the midst of despair must come from God. We must talk to ourselves from the word of God rather than listening to ourselves from our circumstances. You all ought to just read that again. That's a good line if I do say so myself, okay? But we've got to learn to talk to ourselves from God's word rather than listening to ourselves from our circumstances. And that's what the psalmist did in Psalm number 42. You see at the bottom of page 7, Here's the psalmist talking to himself. That's what he's doing. He's going, self, why are you so downcast? Why are you so disturbed? So here he is downcast, here he is disturbed, but he's talking to himself, saying, why are you that? But he's talking to himself, thankfully, not from the circumstances, He emerges from that to talk to himself from the word of God. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Of that, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, said this at the top of page four. In his book, you see at the bottom of that second paragraph, his book's titled Spiritual Depression. Lloyd-Jones wrote a book called That. And we have copies of that book in our resource center. And in it, he says this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness of life in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday and so on. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Your talk, yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why, my soul, are you downcast? He asked. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I'm going to speak to you. The self of ours has got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Turn on him. Speak to him. Condemn him. Upbraid him. Exhort him. Encourage him. Remind him of what you know instead of listening placidly to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you. For that is what he will always do if you allow him to be in control. The devil takes hold of self and uses it in order to depress us. We must stand up as this man did and say, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him. Now, there's the practical matter of suicide and the law in our current day. Dignity is accorded to all humans because they're made in the image of God. Therefore, so-called death with dignity is not. Dignity does not belong only to those who consider themselves to be worth, that we consider worthy of life. A terminally ill patient is no less in God's image than a young man or woman in the prime of life. Dignity can and should be demonstrated not just in the absence of suffering, but in the face of suffering. Let me just stop there for a moment. Not only in the face of the suffering can we demonstrate the dignity of human life that's made in the image of God. Hear this. In the face of suffering, we also can demonstrate the worth of God in the midst of that. Because... I've had to encourage people who are in deep, deep, difficult situations that from a human standpoint, physically, they're never going to come out of. And they're saying, you know, what is my purpose? And what is their ultimate purpose? It's to bring glory to whom? God, right? And in the midst of our suffering, if in the midst of that suffering we show the surpassing worth of, Of Jesus Christ. If we find ourselves through the pain and through the difficulty of still praising him. And still saying, Lord, I look forward to the time that I'm going to be with you. And yet, while I'm here, I'm going to serve you in whatever way I'm able to do that. As a witness for you, you, as a witness to your worth, to those who need to know you. It's a profound message to communicate to an onlooking world. My wife and I have been asked to go and speak to a man who uh, will probably do it this week, who's bedridden and may never get out of his bed for the rest of his life. But that's the message that I'm going to bring to him. I'm going to bring to him what I am saying to you, what I'm saying to you now, and I encourage you to appropriate that for yourself and for others that God allows you to minister to. Now, that section deals with suicide and, and the law. Active measures to take someone's life in so-called mercy killing or death with dignity violate God's standard. Now, there are active measures to take someone's life. But I make a distinction, just for what it's worth, as a practical matter. I make a distinction between active measures to take a life and active measures to prolong death. You see, we live in a time now where you can keep people alive just to prolong death. So there's a difference between active measures to take someone's life versus active measures to prolong death. Or, to put it another way, there's a difference between preserving life and prolonging death. I've had to help people, people in our church, in those situations where the person is now at a point where we're simply prolonging death in an artificial way. That's not the same thing as suicide. That's not the same thing as assisted suicide. And then suicide and the self. The word suicide is a compound of two Latin words meaning self-killing. By definition, then, suicide is focused on self. At its core, it's a desire to determine our own destiny in accord with our own thinking apart from due consideration of others, the impact that this would have on them, and including consideration of God. While our circumstances may cause us to wonder why we're on earth, that decision is best left to God, and there are good reasons for us to be left on earth that I've already talked about. We have the example of Job, who lost everything, his children, wealth, health, respect. His wife thought he should curse God and die. She was basically suggesting suicide, but Job refused to give in to despair. He asked, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And so our lives are not our own. They belong to the Creator who gave them. And if we are Christians, to the Redeemer who bought them. And that's what the top of page 5 is about. So for suicide and the Christian, we must never encourage suicide of any type, even in the darkest hours of health or depression. We must demonstrate true compassion to hurting people. So when I talk about finding your place in God's plan, and I talk about how you can still be used in showing the worth of God in the midst of all of your your difficulty. I should never, ever be able to say that blithely or easily because the truth is it's going to be extremely hard for the person in that very difficult situation. It's true. It's what I need to say. But I need to say it by doing my level best to put myself in their shoes, to be human before them, To admit that I sin on a daily basis. And what I'm telling you, though it's true, I know is hard. And I need the grace of God every day in my life to keep me from sin. And you are going to need the grace of God to help you to perform what the Bible teaches in your situation. And so here's the conclusion on page six. It's easier for people to fall into despair. Even believers in their own struggle with sin, living in a fallen world, can find themselves despairing of life and wishing to be dead. The Apostle Paul said that about himself. Did you all know that? As he talks about all the things that happened to him, he at one point says, And we were despairing of life, of life itself. It's the Apostle Paul. You're not alone. Such an idea has been uttered by countless thousands before you, even biblical heroes like Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Jonah, Job. And as I say, Paul experienced such anguish of soul. They wish to die rather than to face another day of life. But death is not the end. And suicide does therefore not make things better for an unbeliever. It's appointed unto men once to die and after this comes the judgment. But as a Christian, last paragraph. Who commits suicide, they will not go to hell. They've committed a sin because suicide is murdering yourself. But if they're if they belong to God, they will not go to hell. So I want to end with that note. Some of you may have loved ones who've committed suicide and you wonder about where they where they are. Their fate is exactly the same as the fate of every person on earth. The issue about, as to whether someone spends eternity in heaven or hell is not what the last act of this life was. The issue is whether or not they belong to Jesus Christ. Now, that can only be said in biblical Christianity. <laughs> because only biblical Christianity is a grace-based good news gospel. A works-based system can't say that. Think about it. If you're in a workspace based system and you have to either work to make yourself good enough or work to atone for what you've done, then if the last act you did in this world was murder, then you've got no chance in a workspace based system to atone for that, to make up for that. Only in the good news of the gospel. Because Jesus covered our sins and we're not responsible to... Co- cover them ourselves can we say that a believer who succumbs to the temptation to suicide still still goes to heaven this is why in Roman Catholicism suicide is a mortal sin that sends someone to hell in the Roman Catholic system because it's a works based system we must thank God for the gospel of his grace let's bow together and do that Father, we thank you for this opportunity and this hour to recognize our young people who you brought to this milestone in graduating from high school. Father, we ask your blessing on each and every one of them and the paths that you designed for them. May they place you first. May they place your mission first. May they grow in you along the way. May they bring glory to you. Father, we thank you that we've had this time to think about this difficult issue of coming to the ultimate decision of taking our life because in a fallen world through various circumstances we've come to believe that it's better than living oh lord help us each of us who are here to take heed to what we've talked about so that we can practice every day meditating upon the truths thinking about the truths of who you are what you are doing where we fit into your plan in your world remembering that you are active in every moment of every day, even the difficulties of our lives. And so, Lord, we ask you to, to help us to do that, so that when, not if, the times come, that challenge us, that would, that would move us toward despair. We have this reservoir of truth to draw from, to sustain us in it, so that we no longer listen to ourselves, but we talk to ourselves from the Word of God. Lord, I ask you to help us to do that in our own lives, and taking these truths and appropriating them ourselves. Help us to be equipped counselors for those who are in despair. We live in a culture that increasingly has people living in and descending into darkness. May the light of the gospel shine ever brighter in the midst of that darkness and use us as your stars to shine in that sky. Go with us this week, we ask you. Grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.